Good morning, church. I want to take a, a moment to thank all of the musicians, the Christian and other worship leaders up here, as, as well as those who do special music for us and prelude stuff and postlude stuff, Julie and others. Thank you so much for the blessing that that is. I don't know about you, but it always lifts me up. Amen? Lifts me up to a place to contemplate the Word of God, and I think that's why it's so special to have it. Last week, we had the opportunity to look at the baptism of Jesus Christ. You recall? At the waters of the Jordan River, we saw the Son of God approved by the Father and anointed by the Spirit. And now, if we had never read the Gospel of Matthew, if we weren't familiar with the story, we would expect that right after the baptism, which we we talked about it being the the readiness, getting Jesus ready for uh, an affirmation of his ministry, we'd expect that he would just scoot right into his ministry, right? That he would start his own baptism ministry and proclaiming the gospel and healing people and the sick and all all of that. Instead, we run up against Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the temptation. So Jesus goes from this mountaintop experience of his baptism, hearing God proclaim that he affirms him, to maybe the darkest moment of his life before his death. And it's in the wilderness where Jesus is prepared for his ministry. So the baptism positioned him for ministry, and the temptation prepared him for it. So in in the temptation, Jesus is, he's pressed, he's tested. It's, It's like a crucible for Jesus. And on the other end, the gleaming jewel that emerges is the demonstration of the type of faith we should strive to live up to, okay? So let's stand and read Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Please be seated. As we pray. Lord, I echo the prayers of these other men this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts to your word, mold us and shape us around it, Lord God. Reveal to us a greater portion of your kingdom today and uh, align our lives to you and to your word and to your revelation. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew sets the scene for us in verses 1 and 2. Forty days and forty nights Jesus lived in the wilderness, 
being tempted by the devil. Through this whole time, Jesus didn't eat anything. The Spirit brings him into the wilderness. And remember, John, John the Baptist, emerged from the wilderness in order to start baptizing people. We talked a couple weeks ago about the wilderness in Jewish thought and what it represents. For us, it represents a wild uncertainty, danger. But for Israel at the time, the wilderness represented a new beginning, right? new life. That's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is brought into the wilderness to prepare for his ministry. He too is going to emerge from the place of new beginnings and start something. It's a time of testing, a time of preparation, just like it was for the nation of Israel. So notice the intentionality here in verse 1. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The same Holy Spirit that anointed and empowered Jesus for his ministry at his baptism intentionally leads him now to the wilderness for a time of testing. There's a great lesson there for us, I think. Right? Often after a great spiritual experience, we're intentionally led into a time of testing by the Lord. That's something to remember. In youth ministry, the annual summer trip was always something the kids looked forward to and that I looked forward to. It was a great time. We'd go to a conference or on a mission trip or something fun, and we'd have a a great old time. They'd learn a lot, and, and we'd get to do a lot of interesting things, a lot of fun things, and a lot of them got to do a lot of things they had never done for the Lord. It was, also, it was always a great time, you might say a mountaintop experience. Many of you could raise your hand and share something like that from your youth, where you went to camp or went on a mission trip or, or something like that. But I was always curious as the youth pastor to see who would stick with it. Right? Which kids who had a great experience on the trip would lean on that when life got difficult because... Summer always ended with school. Every year I saw kids who would grow a lot in the summer shrink when they were put into the crucible of school, which is a time of growth and testing. Take the Apostle Peter, right? Peter, hours after experiencing one of the greatest moments of his life, the Lord's Supper, where Jesus instituted the ordinance of communion that he partook of and declaring to Jesus he would never leave him. Right after that, Peter denied Christ in any association with him. I'm sure you've had, again, a similar experience of a mountaintop and a deep, dark valley. A time of growth and then a time of testing. A time of blessing, you might say, to teach our faith in a time of suffering to test our faith. The extended temptation of Jesus is that. And in his testing, he demonstrates to us his perfect faith in the Father in three distinct but interconnected ways. And in these modes of faith, we should seek to follow him. So first, Jesus Christ has perfect faith in God's timing. Matthew introduces us to another new character in chapter 4 who's going to be coming up all over the place throughout this book, but this is the first time we see him acting on his own. 
He's called several different names throughout the passage, the tempter, the devil, Satan. He is the enemy, the adversary. So let's set the record straight at the beginning. Satan is not the yin to God's yang. He's not equal in God, to God in power. Anything Satan does is permitted by God. But Satan is still God's enemy. He hates God. He's not God's servant. He wants to destroy the things God loves. So in our passage today, Satan has a goal, which is to turn Jesus's heart away from the Father and to drive a wedge between them, between the Father and the Son. That is Satan's goal. But God has his goal in the temptation, and that's to prepare his Son for ministry. We can't forget That God is letting all of this happen to Jesus. That the Spirit intentionally brought him to the wilderness for his benefit. To be tempted by Satan. So we can't let that go. We can't lose sight of that overarching sovereignty God has in this situation. But that's not Matthew's focus. He focuses on Satan's goal. Again, Satan's goal is to drive a wedge between the Father and the Son. Before we move any further, we should say that's his goal with all of us. That's always Satan's goal, to drive a wedge between you and the Father. We have a real enemy who comes against us with similar temptations that Jesus faces here. Peter tells us that he is like a lion seeking someone to devour. The devil and Satan, those names mean accuser. He is set against the anointed of God, both in this story, Jesus, and in our lives. When I picture the temptation of Jesus, and I I use my imagination, I picture the scary, shadowy figure approaching Jesus, maybe all dressed up in a dark robe with with a hood over his face, and you can barely see him, and he's all very scary, very menacing, and obviously evil. Anybody else picture that too? Jesus is desperate, crawling around in the wilderness, and this menacing figure, like almost not unlike the emperor in Star Wars, stands over Jesus and tries to tempt him. But rarely does Satan approach his prey with so obvious a look. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, Satan disguises himself, and he disguises himself even as an angel of light. So Jesus is out in the wilderness where John came from, if you'll recall, from a couple weeks ago, where hermits lived, seeking spiritual fulfillment, where the community of Qumran was, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. This is the same location. So perhaps we should shift our imaginations. Maybe Satan approaches Jesus disguised like that, like a spiritual person, like a hermit, curious wanting to know what's going on. No matter what he actually looked like, I want, I want you to remove your image of Satan, if that's tail and pitchfork or brooding emperor Palpatine, whatever it might be. Remove that. Satan is a liar. And he will do what he can to convince righteous people to turn away from God. So picture him approaching Jesus in such a manner that would best fit him to do that. His first question seems innocent enough. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
And we can almost imagine an extended first interaction. Satan approaches Jesus curiously, maybe saying something like, hey, I saw your baptism. That was really something. I heard that voice from heaven say, you're the son of God. Well, if that's true, what are you doing out here? Why are you so hungry? If you were the son of God, would you suffer the indignity of hunger? Look, don't you have the power? No, don't you have the right to eat whenever you want to if you're the son of God? Look, here's a stone. And it already even looks like a loaf of bread. It's in your power to eat. If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus sees right through it all. Right? He knows who's approaching him. He knows the implication of giving in to this particular temptation. So his reply is simple. He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's fascinating. A fascinating response. Is it a sin to eat bread? No. Is it a sin to satisfy your hunger? No, of course not. Which makes this particular temptation all the more interesting. What is Satan tempting Jesus with? That's a big, important question. The first temptation was ultimately a question of priorities. It's a question of priorities. The Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness and has communicated to him that he needed to fast for this extended period of time. That's the Lord's will for Jesus. Jesus is obviously hungry. Verse 2 tells us that. So his belly isn't being miraculously filled the whole time. The father did not take away the hunger pains of the son, even if he is being miraculously sustained. And anyone would be hungry after 40 days of not eating. We have to remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He got tired, he got thirsty, he got hungry. And man, would I be hungry? Okay, so here's the test. Would Jesus trust in God's timing to satisfy his essential needs? Or would he satisfy them himself? It was in his power to do so. Would he do it himself? Would Jesus trust that God would take care of him when he decided to? Would Jesus submit to the Father, even in his bodily needs and worldly possessions? It's a faith question. Jesus didn't know when the Father would supply his need to eat. But he's presented with an opportunity now to fix the problem himself. And Jesus replies, or reply shows that he completely understood the implication of doing that. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, in some senses, that verse is paradoxical. Words are more important than bread. True. But words don't fill bellies. So what does this scripture mean? It's not saying we can live without food as long as we read the scriptures. That should not be your takeaway here. It's saying that God's word is more important than food. One of our most base needs in life, 
The word of God is more important than that. It's a statement of priorities. If we prioritize our physical needs over the commands of the Lord, we've actually got it backwards. If we prioritize food first and God's word somewhere after that, then we'll naturally lean on our own ability to provide for those needs. Jesus knew that God had ordained this time for him to be hungry, to be in pain. And for him to supernaturally turn stones into bread would have been to flip these priorities upside down. He knew he needed to trust in God's timing to provide. John Calvin says this, commenting on this passage. He says, the precise object of Christ's reply is this. We ought to trust in God for food and for the other necessities of the present life in such a manner that none of us may overleap the boundaries which God has prescribed. So do you go to the Lord first when you're in need? Or is it your habit to figure all your problems out on your own and God is kind of a backup plan? A quick prayer if something doesn't turn out right. That's mine. I was very convicted when studying this passage this week. I want to fix my own problems quickly instead of bringing them to the Lord and trusting in his leading and in in his timing. I have a hard time leaning on and trusting in God's timing. I confess that. My faith lacks in that area and I need the spirit to build me up, but I don't think I'm alone here. Jesus demonstrates perfect faith in this area. He knows the Father loves him and the Father will provide for him, even for this most basic need that the Father has not provided for for 40 days. And he was right. In verse 11, angels minister to Jesus right after Satan leaves. You almost get the sense from the behold that Matthew uses in verse 11 that they were just waiting for Satan to leave so they could minister to Jesus, just like Elijah was ministered to in the wilderness by angels with food. Jesus' faith in God's timing is perfect, and it teaches us to rely on God and not on our own strength. Who here is relying on their own strength today? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Jesus teaches us how to love the Lord with all our might. Second, Jesus demonstrates perfect faith in God's word. Satan's disguise has been ripped off. Jesus knows what's up. Satan's not going to be able to trick Jesus into thinking that he's some innocent hermit or whatever. So his next attack is intellectual. Look back at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So this scene shifts from the wilderness to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. Now there's some speculation here about whether or not Satan miraculously transported Jesus to the temple physically, or if this is some type of vision. It's interesting to think about. We can debate that maybe. You can draw your own conclusions. But in order to be a real temptation, I think at least Jesus would have had to feel like he was on top of something really high up. 
and that if he jumped, it would be fatal. Anyone here afraid of heights? I wasn't for a long time, really until I had a child and uh, went on this particular ride at an amusement park in Shakopee, Minnesota, where Ashley's family lives. The amusement park's called Valley Fair, uh, which is not anything to write home about living in the land of Disney World and Universal Studios. But it has one of those rides where you're lightly kind of strapped into this seat that is smaller than our seats here, and uh, you're lifted up into the sky, and you're spun around, like hundreds of feet in the sky, spun around, and you're only held onto that ride through these little tiny small gauge chains, like two of them. So I was up there, stupidly, spinning around really fast, and I look at this chain, and I'm, you know, I'm not a little fella, and I think like the only thing keeping me from plummeting to the ground right now is this little stupid chain, right? And that if the Lord wanted, I could indeed die. So yeah, since then, I've not really loved heights. So I can imagine for Jesus right now, like he's about the same age as I am, or was when that happened. He's looking down. I'm sure he's feeling pretty uncomfortable. And Satan's temptation, once again, if you look at it, is an attack on his sonship. If you are the son of God, that's the second time he started that way. Remember, remember, Satan's goal is to drive a wedge between the father and the son. This is always his goal, even with us. He wants to drive a wedge between us and God. But this time, Satan cleverly quotes scripture. He says he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And he's quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. It's a clever ploy. Satan comes to Jesus with the seemingly reasonable argument. And again, we can almost extend Satan's words here. Prove to yourself right now that you are the father's son. You can't really ever be sure that you are unless you see for yourself that he's willing to save you. Look, the scriptures say he'll send angels and, and save you if, you if you fall. Why not try that out? Throw yourself down. The second temptation is really a challenge to Jesus' faith in God's declaration. His declaration about him at his baptism. The father said that Jesus was the son and that he was well pleased in him. Would Jesus need proof? Jesus' reply is so simple and great, it tells us a lot about his faith. He said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I want you to notice a couple things about Jesus' reply here. First, Jesus skillfully corrects Satan on his biblical interpretation. Satan quotes Psalm 91. But he does so incorrectly. In the first place, Psalm 91 is not a messianic psalm per se. Everything contained in the psalm is true of the Messiah, sure. But it's also true of all of us. Anyone who, as verse 1 of that psalm says, finds shelter in the Most High. So Satan takes this passage out of context. 
And he, he deliberately, intentionally misses that context. It has nothing to do with testing God in verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 91, but with God lovingly looking after his people, even to the point of guiding their steps so they don't trip. So he takes the passage out of context and he tries to mash it into a test for faith. Several mistakes here. Misinterpreting the passage, taking it out of context, and trying to fit it into his own meaning. But Jesus knows how to interpret and apply scripture. He knows that Satan has made a terrible and elementary error. Clear scripture interprets unclear scripture. Let me say that again. Clear scripture always interprets unclear scripture. That's one of the basic tenets of understanding the Bible. If you're not sure what the Bible says on a particular topic, the clearest scripture stands. Satan tries to take scripture and make it fit into this test about Jesus' sonship, but Jesus takes a clear scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and he corrects Satan. It's a sin to test God. Okay, so no scripture can actually serve to test God if he's already commanded that you can't test him. Clear scripture interprets unclear scripture. Jesus doesn't fall for the intellectual test. He knows his Bible. But man, we fail here a lot. How many times have we read in scripture promises and truths about us? Propositions God has made about you and failed to actually believe them. We're told that we're a friend of Christ, but Satan makes us feel like we're still his enemy. We're told we're adopted by the Father as sons and daughters, but Satan makes us think that we have to prove to God that we're worthy of his love. We're told that we're free from sin. But Satan makes us think that we're still enslaved. Satan's second temptation was an attempt to make Jesus think that the Father didn't really mean what he said. That he needed more evidence. That he needed to put it to the test. See if it was true. But Jesus demonstrates his perfect trust in God's word. He shows how to love the Lord with all your heart. Third, Jesus demonstrates perfect love in God's design. Satan knows now he won't be able to trick Jesus into second-guessing his sonship, so he decides to tempt Jesus with a different path. Look at it. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to, said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan brings Jesus from the top of the temple in Jerusalem to the top of a mountain. And if the temple wasn't a vision, then this final temptation certainly is. Because at the top of this mountain, Jesus is able to see all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory which I'm sure would have been uh, an amazing sight. The temptation is simple. All these I will give you. This can all be yours if you fall down and worship me. 
simple temptation. So simple, we actually might wonder why Satan's even trying this on Jesus. Right? We, we would expect Jesus' answer to be easy. It's not a ploy or a trick into having Jesus do his own thing like make bread. It's not an intellectual attack meant to stumble Jesus into making an exegetical error. It's a brash, brazen attempt to get Jesus to worship Satan. That's all it is. But here's an interesting question before we move on. Are the kingdoms of the earth Satan's to give? In one sense, yes. And in another sense, definitely not. Jesus says that Satan is the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2. So in one sense, Satan has authority on this earth. And through our study of 1 John, we've learned that the world for John, the cosmos, is this domain of darkness that Satan rules over. That is his to give. But Satan, as we've already seen, is also the prince of lies. Listen to what Jesus calls him in John chapter 8. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's either lying to Jesus here about being able to hand over all the kingdoms of the world to him, or he actually just believes his own lies and is delusional. The ultimate authority over all things comes from God, of course. Any authority that Satan thinks he has over the world was given to him by God. So we may think that it would be an easy choice for Jesus. But I think it's worth looking a little bit deeper into the temptation. What is Satan offering Jesus? All the kingdoms in the world in their glory. That's the offer, at least. He's offering to make Jesus king of kings. Matthew's been trying to show us the whole time that Jesus is the king of kings who sits on David's throne forever. Being the king of kings is Jesus' ultimate goal. It is who he is and who he is going to be. And Satan is offering him a direct road to this. Because as you're well aware, the Father's path to Jesus' kingship is a path of suffering. It involves rejection from men, desertion of his friends, physical torture and death, suffering beyond belief. That's the Father's path for Jesus. And Satan here is right before Jesus saying, you don't have to go through all that to be king. I can give it to you now. All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. All Jesus has to do then is to bend the knee, to fall down on his face like the wise men at his birth. He can forego all the suffering, all the death, all the pain. But Jesus demonstrates a perfect faith in God's design for his future. He says, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In his reply, Jesus confirms that he worships the Father. He serves the Father. Remember last week, the first point, Jesus always obeys the Father, always. He understands that God's design and God's path to his kingship leads through suffering. 
And he takes that on willingly. He understands that God's design is better than the easy path offered by Satan. Jesus will teach this on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus could have sold his soul for an easier path. But instead, Jesus loves God with all his soul. So Jesus sends Satan away. Once again, quoting the book of Deuteronomy from chapter 6. So maybe you've noticed a theme. Jesus only quotes from the book of Deuteronomy and specifically from a small section where Moses addresses the nation of Israel and he's reminding them of their time in the wilderness, coincidentally enough. The nation of Israel, remember, was hungry when they entered the wilderness and they complained to God who provided manna. They didn't trust in God's timing for their provision or that God would sustain them through their suffering. They complained. At the waters of Meribah, in Exodus 17, once again they complain that they are thirsty. And Moses asks them, he asks them, why they see fit to test God. They had seen how God had already provided with the manna, but they didn't trust God's word. And it was while Moses was receiving the law at Mount Sinai, that the people of Israel started to worship the golden calf. They started to bend their knee to anything that would provide for them. That was a mark of the nation of Israel throughout their history, that they would bend their knee to any God who provided an easier path to success. They didn't trust in God's design. But Jesus, here pictured by Matthew as the better Israel, does all of these things. He is, this is, a recapitulation, a retelling of Israel's time in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Jesus enters the wilderness just like Israel, and he passes every test. They were in the wilderness for 40 years. He was there for 40 days. They were tempted in all three of these ways. So was he, and he passed. And he demonstrates what it looks like to have perfect faith in God. And so now... Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, can say this. Therefore he, has, he may, he had, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me say that last part again. Because he himself has suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands what it means to be tempted, and yet he never gave in to temptation. These three temptations are a microcosm of every possible sin. They're a temptation to not love God with all your heart and soul and might, which we're commanded to do. 
And because our older brother was able to fight off sin, so can we. That's one of the great promises of Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Christ demonstrates that we should not despair of the ability to fight Satan and win. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's getting that from Jesus in the wilderness, telling Satan to go away. We've been commanded to wage war against our enemy, to take up our armor and fight with the sword of the Spirit, and to put to death the deeds of the flesh. We're commanded to do this. Are we able? Yes. Jesus himself was able by the power of the Spirit. Jesus shows us it is possible that with the Holy Spirit we can actually do this. Maybe you're in a time of testing. Maybe this is hard for you to believe right now because of that. Maybe you are suffering and your suffering has reached a fever pitch. Do not despair of your ability to act with faith, even right now. Don't despair of your ability through the Spirit to resist sin. You can. Those of you who are in the trenches, suffering right now, you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can be holy as God is holy by the power of the Spirit. Just as the Spirit never left Jesus in the wilderness through all of this, He never leaves you to fight on your own. And so, again, if you are in the midst of suffering right now, lean upon first the grace of God and on the power of the Spirit. And if you're in a time of blessing, like Jesus right before the wilderness, equip yourself now with the Word of God. Prepare yourself with it so that you can stand and fight when your time of testing comes, because it will. Put on the full armor of God so you can stand against the schemes of the devil. What spiritual disciplines can you put in place today that will aid you in your eventual fight? If you're in a time of blessing and you're saying to yourself, I'm not much of a man or woman of prayer. I don't get in the word very much. I haven't fasted in 15 years. I don't spend much time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are the things to equip yourself with now so that when you are tested, you have them in your arsenal. Prepare yourself so you can stand and fight. Put on the full armor. Take inventory of your heart. Analyze yourself with brutal honesty. What are the likely ways Satan will come against you when your time of testing comes? If you're going to fight him, you have to know yourself well because he's going to come against you with the things that will drive a wedge between you and the Father. He attacked Jesus' sonship because he thought that was the best route. What's he going to attack you with? Know yourself well. And for all of us, whether in our time of suffering and testing, or those in a time of blessing. We shouldn't ever forget the words of the Apostle Peter, who gives us this assurance. He says this, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us and your demonstration of faithfulness in the wilderness, Jesus. Thank you that we can look at your word and apply these things to our lives. Lord, you showed us what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, and might. And you did it perfectly. Lord, you did not know when your next meal would come, but you trusted God would provide it. Lord, you did not need physical proof that you were the son of the father. You believed what he said. Lord, you trusted that God's future for you, that the father's future for you through suffering was better than the easy path. These are difficult for us, Lord, and we need your help. Holy Spirit, we need your help to exercise this kind of faith, to fight off the devil. Help us to do that. We trust in you. We lean upon you today. We thank you for your constant provision. Lord, if there is someone here today who is in the midst of suffering, I pray that you would give them an overwhelming sense of your peace and love, that they are declared children of God because they believe the gospel. And if there's anybody here who is still in their sins because they've not believed in the gospel, I pray that you would convict their heart of their sin, that they would confess their sin to you, repent of it and turn away, and follow you with all of their heart, soul, and might. We love you and we thank you for your goodness and your constant grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.